Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and today you'll hear part two of the murder of Layla Daniel. I'm going to be honest really quickly, like I think everyone on this planet does, I hate cases that involve children. It would be easy to avoid them, but these cases, cases like Olivia Gant, Malachi Lawson, Noah Tomlin, and Layla and Millie need to be heard because something has to change. I've spoken to so many social workers throughout researching these cases, and the system is broken on so many sides, and the victims here are always the children. No matter what side of the broken coin the damage comes from, the victims here are the children, and they need to be advocated for. We need to overcome the bystander effect and start reporting something when we suspect anything, instead of stepping back and worrying that we're being dramatic or assuming that someone else probably already has. We need to learn what the warning signs are of abuse and we need to do something about it when we see them. With that, you guys know that I don't do small talk, so let's dive in. In last week's episode, you guys got the bare bones of Layla and Millie's case, and even just the bare bones was horrific. You heard about the years and years it took to finally see Jennifer and Joseph stand trial, but on July 10th of 2019, it finally began. Before we get started, anyone who wants to watch the trial in its entirety, Eleven Alive filmed the whole thing, so I'll link their YouTube account and Layla's highlight on my Instagram at the Heather Ashley. Fair warning, it is extremely difficult to take in. The opening statements of the trial from the prosecution was basically that you're going to hear a lot of lies from the defense, the biggest lie being that Layla choked on a piece of chicken because there was no chicken and there was no choking. The medical examiner testified that there was no indication whatsoever that Layla had ever choked. There were no food particles in Layla's esophagus like you'd expect to see in a choking incident. And furthermore, the only food in Layla's stomach was well along in the digestion process and was unrecognizable, which means she wasn't sitting down eating chicken nuggets and carrots when she just suddenly started choking. There was no chicken and there were no carrots in her stomach. Layla had not been eating. Had she been, you would have seen recognizable bits of any food in her stomach because like every other function in your body, digestion stops when the heart stops. Some of you might remember the Leanne Sluter case. Leanne was found hours after her death, was cold to the touch, and was in rigor mortis. And even still, she had partially digested burger and fries in her stomach, which was fully recognizable at the time of her autopsy. The Emmy and Layla's case took it even further, though. Not only was there no evidence that she'd been eating, let alone choking at the time of her death, they testified that Jennifer's account that Layla began seizing and that her eyes rolled into the back of her head isn't what you'd expect to see in the case of someone choking. Instead, it's what you'd expect to see in the case of someone suffering a severe injury with significant blood loss. And Layla had just that. During her autopsy, they found 150 cc's of blood in Layla's abdomen from internal bleeding. For those of you with kids, you've probably given them 5 milliliters of some kind of antibiotic or children's Tylenol or something. Multiply that by 30, and that's what was free-floating in Layla's tiny, emaciated, little 2-year-old abdomen at the time of her death. 
The internal bleeding is mostly attributed to the two lacerations to her pancreas, which we know was literally split in two. But she also had two lacerations to her liver, one recent and one they estimate was a few days to a few weeks old at the time of her death, an injury that had never been treated. This toddler had suffered more than one laceration to her kidney, while most adults never experience even one. The medical examiner estimates that whatever trauma caused the damage to her pancreas and liver, which ultimately resulted in her death, likely happened about an hour before she began seizing, and that none of her injuries were consistent with having been given the Heimlich maneuver or CPR that night. Basically, Jennifer's explanations for Layla's injuries was shit. You already know about Layla's broken arm, leg, and rib. You might think that Layla's broken rib could have been caused by Jennifer doing said Heimlich up against the sink, but no, her rib showed signs of being a few weeks into the healing process. Again, she was never treated for whatever caused it. As far as Layla's external injuries went, they were just as horrific as her internal ones. When the medical examiner shaved her head, and even saying that breaks my heart, when he shaved her head to examine it for any injuries, they found 22. Yes, you heard that correctly. Layla had 22 bruises and abrasions to her head and neck alone. One of Layla's ears was actually missing more than half of the skin on it. The injuries to Layla's head, just like all of the other injuries to her body, were once again in different stages of the healing process. She also had what looked like a healing burn running across her stomach. Her back was almost entirely covered in bruises from top to bottom, and this was probably where Jennifer decided she would come up with the Heimlich theory, because what other explanation would there be for a two-year-old's back to be almost completely covered in bruises? Unfortunately for Jennifer, bruises tell a story. Healthline.com did an article on the stages of bruising, and it goes from the day of the trauma that caused it through two weeks after the bruising begins. On day one, you'll see the area affected by the trauma turn pink and red, then turn into a purple or blue color. After day one and until around day six, it'll stay that purple or blue color. After that, you'll see the bruise fade into a green color for about a day and then see it slowly fade over days 7 through 14 into a yellow or brown color as it completely heals itself and fades away. The top part of Layla's back was covered in yellow bruises, meaning they would have been around a week or more old. The bruising to Layla's lower back was still in the red stage, which means it was newer trauma than would have caused the bruising to the top of her back. Layla's back told a story of repeated trauma over and over again while her frail and malnourished body tried relentlessly to heal itself before the next assault occurred. Layla also had deep muscle bruising to her bottom, which takes so much force. Bruising your skin hurts. Bruising your muscle is excruciating and takes even longer to heal. She also had bruising to her inner thighs and her genitalia. The bruising to this area was referred to as her protected area a lot during the trial. An expert physician testified to the bruising of her protected areas and said that only 0.2% of injuries to that region wind up being accidental. 
Layla's bruises came in all shapes and sizes. Atlanta News Now reported that some of Layla's bruises were in a loop pattern, consistent with being hit with a belt. Sometimes they were round, consistent with being hit with a fist. And some of Layla's bruises were consistent with being hit with the buckle of a belt. She was two years old. And according to Millie's testimony, Layla could barely talk. Her only way of communicating fear and pain was through crying. And it's clear that in the last four months of her life, she was constantly in a state of both. During Millie's testimony, she completely debunked Jennifer's claim of never having bathed Layla, which was her way of explaining how she had no idea she was covered in bruises. According to Millie, each parent, Jennifer and Joseph, was assigned a child to bathe. Joseph was assigned to bathe Millie and added that he put icy hot on her broken elbow and bruises after she got out of the bath. The application of Icy Hot isn't any bonus points for Joseph, though, because Millie said that when she or her older sister were in their bedroom being beaten with a belt for falling asleep in the car, which was an absolute no-no in their house, or for not getting dressed quickly enough, Joseph would just stand there and watch, never stepping in to stop her. But back to the bathing. Jennifer was assigned to bathe Layla, so according to the only believable witness that lived in that house, Jennifer would have known better than anyone about the extent of Layla's at least external injuries. And it seems like damn near everyone but Jennifer seemed to notice them. That is, of course, when Layla was allowed to be seen. In September, two months before Layla died, she was visiting with her great-grandmother Peggy. And there's a correction there. Peggy was her great-grandmother, not her great-aunt. While visiting with Peggy, Peggy's friend noticed Layla had a black eye and asked Jennifer what had happened. Jennifer told her that she had gotten it at daycare and jokingly added, you should see the other guy. But that was just one of the stories she told about Layla getting a black eye. Jennifer had actually asked one of her neighbors, who happened to be a nurse, for some medical advice about a recent injury to Layla's face. However, when this neighbor actually saw Layla, she noticed what she referred to as raccoon eyes, which indicated to her that this injury had happened well before Jennifer told her it had. From what I understand, this neighbor suspected abuse and did report it. What happened with that report? Who fucking knows? Another neighbor testified that they never saw much of the girls at all. It wasn't like they were regularly out playing in the yard or going to and from activities on a regular basis like daycare or gymnastics. You know, the gymnastics gym that Jennifer said Layla broke her leg at and Millie broke her elbow at. Jennifer claimed that Layla had fallen from a bar onto the padded floor, which is what caused her shin to break beneath the kneecap, but an expert testified that a two-year-old couldn't exert enough force to cause the break that Layla had, and the gym made it clear that she had never been on any of the equipment there. It should also be mentioned that Jennifer's claim that Millie slammed her elbow into her knee at gymnastics, causing her to break her elbow, also didn't match up with the injury itself. Daycare, though, daycare is yet another lie Jennifer told at her own convenience. Neither Layla nor Millie were ever enrolled in daycare. So now that we know that, where exactly did that black eye come from? While neither of the kids ever went to daycare, that didn't stop Jennifer from using it as a tool in her game of cover-up. 
One day before a scheduled visit with the girls and their mom, Tessa, Jennifer texted her that she was on the way to the daycare to pick up Layla because she was sick. She even went as far as to send Tessa a picture of Layla at the doctor's office and used Layla's illness as a reason for canceling that visit with the girls the following day. The problem here was that there was never any daycare for Layla to be picked up from. In fact, the daycare she tried to say they went to didn't even take kids her age on the day of the week and the time that she claimed to have been picking her up. And that picture that she sent Tessa from the doctor's office, it had been taken two months prior. We see this pattern of hiding children from the public in almost every child abuse case we see. Neighbors don't see them playing outside. They get pulled from public school. They get pulled from daycare. They get pulled from sports. Visits with family members start getting canceled. You start seeing them in unseasonably hot clothing to cover up injuries or weight loss. And that's exactly what happened with Layla. She stopped seeing her great-grandmother. She stopped seeing her mother. And neighbors didn't see them outside. Peggy and her friend were finally able to see Layla again on October 17th, a month before she died, because Millie was having her fourth birthday party, a birthday party that one of her friends from the DA's office's daughter actually helped out with. When they did see Layla, she was dressed in a full-on Olaf costume that covered every bit of her body except for a small circle of her face. That is the extent Jennifer and Joseph went to to conceal Layla's injuries to anyone but them. Costume and all, Peggy's friend noticed that Layla had lost a significant amount of weight, but just assumed it was from her growing upwards and losing some of her baby weight, but did joke to Jennifer that she should give her an extra cupcake. Millie's party would have been around the time Layla broke her leg, but she did not have a cast on yet. Not a single person remembers Layla walking at this party. She was passed around from person to person, and when someone tried to pass her to Joseph, she refused and was put into a wagon. And for the rest of the party, when she wasn't being pulled around in that wagon, she was in someone's arms. Layla wasn't treated for that broken leg until three days later, and to different parties, Jennifer told people that Layla had fallen into a hole in her great-grandmother's backyard, that she'd fallen from a bar onto the mat at gymnastics, and that she'd fallen from the wall ladder at gymnastics. The truth isn't hard to remember. After Layla's death, Peggy and her friend went through all the photos they could find from Millie's birthday party and blew them up so they could inspect what little of Layla's face they could see. And that's when they saw the bruises peeking out from the sides of her Olaf costume and again could find absolutely zero photos of her walking. Defects workers took the stand to talk about their role in what happened to Layla, and in this case, it wasn't like one or two things slipped through the cracks and Layla died because of it. No, these girls were failed from day one or negative day one. Jennifer had actually been rejected for fostering twice prior to getting the girls. News Daily quoted one of the workers as saying, Jennifer made two applications. One was in her maiden name, Holcomb, which turned up her own Child Protective Services history. That application was naturally denied. The other application included her husband, Joseph, under their married name. They went through orientation, but she was never given the final approval. And this caseworker doesn't know how Jennifer and Joseph got Layla and Millie because she approves all of the home studies in Henry County. Jennifer's home evaluation was signed and approved by someone not authorized to do it. 
This time, when she specifically sought out Layla and Millie, Eleven Alive reports that Jennifer was only screened through her married name. They failed to screen her through her maiden name as well, and somehow, this time, the third time, she was approved. The defect supervisor who was fired admitted that Jennifer would have been denied again had they run her through her maiden name like they had in the past. So why this time? Why these girls? Why did she pick Layla and Millie to have someone at the DA's office write a letter of recommendation and fill out the form without her maiden name in the hopes of not being denied this time? One of her neighbors fills in that blank a little. Once Jennifer knew the girls were in the process of being placed with her, she confided in her neighbor that she was about to be fostering the daughters of one of the girls that she herself was in foster care with, that karma was a bitch, and now she would be raising those meth children. Yes, Jennifer called Layla and Millie meth children, knowing they were perfectly sweet and healthy girls who just happened to have an unhealthy mother who couldn't care for them and a great-grandmother who wasn't allowed to have children living in her retirement community. The neighbor was so taken back by what she said that she distanced herself from Jennifer after that conversation. Jennifer and Tessa had, in fact, been in the foster care system together at one point, and they were even friends, but apparently had a falling out over a guy and never rekindled their friendship. It was such a nothing situation for Tessa that she didn't even remember having known Jennifer or even recognize her when she reached out. But Jennifer remembered. Jennifer never forgot and made sure that even her neighbor knew about it. So when we think about the motive behind all of the abuse, why would Jennifer seek these children out just to abuse them? Why did the first criminal complaint cite the abuse starting as early as June when they were just doing those daily visits? We'll never be able to rationalize the irrational, but was the motive revenge? That's something that keeps being brought up as a theory that I've seen in so many places. Did Jennifer want to show Tessa who really won at life by being the one who wound up raising her meth children, as she called them, and then it just spiraled? Food for thought. Remember that nurse who was fostering the girls prior to Jennifer getting them? That nurse noticed that the girls were coming back from their playdates with Jennifer and Joseph bruised and actually reported it to DFAX. Did DFAX do anything about it? No. They chalked the bruising up to normal child's play, and even though the girls weren't getting injuries like that at her house, absolutely nothing was done about it. And that was kind of the tune of defects when it came to Layla and Millie. The caseworker's supervisor wasn't even made aware when Layla broke her leg. She was in a full leg cast with an injury that took her foster mother days to treat and had at least three different stories for, and the defects supervisor didn't even know about it. Maybe if she had, they would have looked into the previous reports of abuse. Maybe if she had, she would have spoken to the doctor who had real concerns about Layla's care. And maybe if she had, they would have checked Layla out, you know, just in case and found out that her arm and her rib were broken too. But that's not what happened here. 
Throughout this entire time, the entire time Defax was failing these girls, great-grandma Peggy was working with her HOA to allow the girls to live with her, and finally, she got the approval from the retirement community to allow Layla and Millie to live there for up to two years, and chances are they would have been removed from Jennifer and Joseph's home because she was in fact a blood relative of theirs who had cared for them in the past. But it was too late. Before Peggy was able to let the caseworkers know about the HOA's decision, Layla died. At this point in the trial, the prosecution rests, and it's the defense's turn to try and convince the jury that Jennifer and Joseph are innocent to try and somehow explain all of Layla's injuries and give reasonable doubt as to how Layla died in their care, and Millie wound up with a broken elbow, thinning hair, and bruising, and damn it if they didn't try. Their first attempt at trying to downplay what happened to Layla was pointing out the fact that Millie sprained her ankle when she lived with Peggy, which wound up being a break when it was x-rayed three days later. But Peggy wasn't charged with child abuse. Their downfall was the fact that Peggy immediately called the pediatrician's office, who told her to put a splint on it to see if it got better over the next few days. When it didn't, Peggy followed their advice to bring her in and have it looked at and then treat it for being broken. The nurse was able to confirm that there was nothing suspicious about the break and that Peggy had followed all of their medical advice in the days following it. When that didn't work, they had someone testify to the fact that Millie was a liar and that she told whoppers. Those big old whopper lies wound up being that she lied about brushing her teeth and putting socks on. So what we're hearing here is that all children are big fat liars and because she lied about brushing her teeth and putting socks on, we shouldn't believe what she has to say about who bathed her, how she broke her arm, who beat her, what they beat her with, who watched her get beaten, and everything else that took place in that house of horrors at the hands of the woman who specifically sought her and her sister out. Past. After this try and fail, they bring out a handful of people who say that they saw the kids after they were placed and said that they seemed happy and loved and they didn't see any cuts or bruises. But this testimony doesn't negate the facts. There were bruises and were reports of suspected abuse as soon as Jennifer and Joseph came into the girls' lives. Layla had three broken bones, two of which were never treated, and that Jennifer and Joseph didn't even seem to know about because all Layla could do to communicate her pain was cry which she would have been doing constantly for the level of pain she was in. They brought in Jennifer's sister to testify, who had actually spent the previous night at their house, but claimed they didn't speak while they were there or on the way to the courthouse, and she just added to the word vomit bullshit that meant nothing. She came in with a new reason for Layla and Millie's injuries, saying that she'd been over at the house on the 16th, the day before Layla died, and that the girls were playing alone in the backyard where there was a giant ladder leaning up against a tree and that both girls climbed up it and had fallen down it. And that's how they really got hurt. So we're on story number 1100, trying to explain the girls' injuries. Unfortunately for her, the girls' injuries did not match those you'd see if they'd fallen down a ladder, hitting horizontal steps on the way down. And even if they did, it would open up a whole new can of questions, like why were a two and a four-year-old left to play unsupervised by a ladder propped up against a tree? And if they did get this hurt on the 16th, why didn't they seek any medical treatment? 
This is seriously not going well for them, but instead of just cutting their losses with Jennifer's sister and getting her off the stand, they let her keep going. And keep going, she did. She testified that her son went to daycare with Layla and Millie on Wednesdays. Apparently, Homegirl missed the beginning of the trial when we established that they weren't enrolled in that daycare and that the Wednesday group there was for teenagers. Homegirl hops off the stand and takes several seats. This was the second time Jennifer or Jennifer's sister had tried to explain away Layla's injuries at the expense of a ladder. First the wall ladder at the gymnastics gym and now a ladder in the backyard that they claim had been there for years. Was this another concocted story like the Heimlich that Jennifer thought might be able to explain away the visible injuries to Layla's body? I mean, how often do kids get hurt on ladders and how often does one case involve two ladders, one of which has already been disproved. Joshua's mom is finally called to the stand and her testimony is just as weird as everyone else's. She's actually raising Joshua's sister's kids due to what she refers to as neglect. So for what it's worth, there's a little bit of a history within the family going on here. She testifies that she doesn't think Joshua is capable of hurting the girls, but that she doesn't think he'd tell her if he was either. Oh, but if Jennifer was, she thinks he'd tell her about that. So Joshua's mom doesn't think he'd be honest about his own abuse against the girls, but thinks he'd sing like a canary to her if Jennifer was. That's an interesting relationship dynamic to consider, especially if you take into the account the fact that he was not home the night Layla died, even though it was his wife's birthday. You also have to wonder why Joshua didn't testify against Jennifer, knowing his charges were so much less than hers, and he seemed to be more than aware of the abuse going on. Was he worried that if he testified against Jennifer that she would testify against him and we'd find out more about his culpability in the abuse against the girls? After 19 days of testimony on July 29th, 2019, the jury is finally released for deliberations and they have to consider every single one of those 49 charges. So everyone expects it's going to take a hot minute for them to reach a verdict. What they didn't expect was the drama that was going to unfold in the meantime. The first debacle came when a reporter approached one of the jurors and asked them about deliberations, which is a huge fucking no-no. But depending on who you ask, you get a different version of the story. According to Kathy Rusage from Crime and Law, the journalist said that she was just greeting the juror with a how's it going and that the juror started giving her some information about how they're nowhere near close to reaching a verdict. The juror said that they didn't tell her anything and told her that they couldn't talk to her and that the other jurors said that they needed to report it to the judge, so they did. The defense filed for a mistrial, but the judge wasn't having it. He spoke to both parties and the juror was dismissed and the reporter apologized, even though she should have known never then to even look in the direction of a juror at this point. Once that juror was dismissed, an alternate who had sat through the entire trial was brought in and the jury deliberations had to start all over. And they had some questions. All the questions seem to be relevant to Joseph and what makes a person a party to a crime. We see questions from juries all the time. I mean, they want to make sure they're doing their job correctly. But the defense was upset that the judge was explaining the laws to them. And it's not like the judge was giving his opinion. The judge literally just read off the stipulations. 
When that complaint didn't work, the defense came out with this theory that the jury was probably getting media blasts to their phones about the case, and that could be swaying them one way or another. So again, the judge has to hear the prosecution and the defense's arguments about this, and it's decided that there's nothing to show that any of the jurors have read these notifications about the case, and they'd been specifically instructed not to read any media releases about it. So their phones are collected during deliberations from here on out to keep the defense from worrying about it, and furthermore, they're fully sequestered to a hotel until they reach a verdict. The defense was not done trying to get this trial thrown out, though. They began creeping the jurors' social media accounts and brought a Facebook post to the judge's attention and tried to get a mistrial declared yet again. The problem being, this social media post wasn't even a post. The girl had just updated her fucking profile picture, and the defense tried to say that she'd broke the judge's rule about staying off of social media. Yet again, the judge denies the motion for a mistrial and tells the defense that there was no such rule, just that they had to stay away from anything regarding the case on social media, and uploading a new profile picture certainly doesn't constitute as violating that. The jury seems really over the bullshit at this point and starts foregoing breaks during the day and working late. They weren't aware they'd have their phones taken away, be denied access to check in with their families and forced to live in a hotel. So they buckle down and power through and I don't think it worked in favor of the defense. On August 1st of 2019, the jury reached a verdict. Both Jennifer and Joseph were probably shitting their pants at this point. They were crying and shaking and just waiting to hear which of the 49 counts they were going to be found guilty of. And for a second, they probably felt a little relief. For count one of malice murder, Jennifer was found not guilty. For count two of felony murder, Jennifer was found not guilty. For count four of felony murder, Jennifer again was found not guilty guilty. She was being found guilty of the assault charges, but not the murder charges, and I'm sure it felt like she might be getting out of there without a life sentence, but when it came to count six of felony murder, Jennifer was found guilty as fuck. Joseph was also found guilty of his charge of second-degree murder. The only charges Jennifer was found not guilty of were the malice murder and the two felony murder charges. She was found guilty on absolutely everything else. The only two charges Joshua was found not guilty of were the aggravated assault charge for the dates of October 20th through November 10th for blunt force trauma to Layla's arm, and the aggravated battery charge for the dates of October 20th through November 6th for the fracture to Layla's rib. He was found guilty on every other charge against him. They were both losing their shit and not a single soul cared except their own family and the defense attorney who tried to delay sentencing and even asked if they could stay out on bond throughout the appeals process. Girl had some balls on her. The judge was not having that either, though. The sentencing was going to happen now. Victim statements were allowed from both Layla and Millie's family and Jennifer and Joseph's family. Layla and Millie's family asked for the maximum penalty for both of them, and, well, Joseph's family one-ups any level of garbage you could have predicted, starting with his father. 
I shit you not, this motherfucker gets up there and said that all of this could have been prevented if Layla and Millie's mother wasn't addicted to drugs and alcohol and that drugs and alcohol are bad and it's a sad thing. Bitch, Tessa didn't make your son and his wife starve and beat a child to death and then beat another child who was lucky enough to survive to test about it. The fuck? Joseph's mom begs the judge for leniency, saying that Joseph has cystic fibrosis and that he'd die in jail because they won't take care of him. I guess we're all forgetting about the two-year-old who died in his house. The defense even has the balls to ask that Joseph only be given five years since the life expectancy for someone with cystic fibrosis is only 44 years. Even the judge was shocked at what was coming out of their mouths and said, It's deeply frustrating for the court to hear family members of the defendants quarrel with the verdict that was rendered in this case. This case was carefully tried, and I'm deeply concerned of the lack of recognition on behalf of the defendants' families, of the scope of the tragedy, and of the cause of the tragedy. I've lived with this case for a long time, too, and I will tell you that this is one of the worst, most horrible crimes, outcomes, that anyone could ever experience or dream of experiencing. And I just want to say, as he looked over at that I feel for and am deeply pained by your loss and I hope that you will somehow find a way to recover. With that, Jennifer was sentenced to life in prison plus two additional 20-year sentences and Joseph was sentenced to 30 years plus 10 years of probation. With all things considered, neither of them will ever breathe a single breath of free air as long as they both shall live. This case was horrifying and horrendous and unfathomable and gut-wrenching, not just to research but to tell because I know it's not easy to listen to, but these children's stories need to be told because like I keep saying, something has to change. We need to hold the system accountable for the promises they make to keep our children safe, and we need to make sure people like Jennifer and Joseph don't fall through the cracks. As citizens, though, we also need to recognize the warning signs and know what they are and not be afraid to report them when we see them because we don't have a perfect system. Don't ever feel like you shouldn't report something because you're not sure if you're overreacting. It's better to say something and it be nothing than to say nothing and it be something. Children's lives depend on it. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Layla's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about the heartbreak that is this case. Special thank you to Lindsay Ann for her help in researching this case. I'll be bringing you a brand new case a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. 